<clears throat> All right, Malachi chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you guys would turn there, that would be great. As I said earlier, today's kind of a weird topic. So if you go to some churches, they talk about money a lot, right? And, and whether you've gone to those churches and loved it or did, I'm not knocking it, I'm just saying it's true to an awkward percentage sometimes, all right? Some churches, because of those churches, have swung all the way over to the other side, and they almost never talk about money, right? And I think if we make any error, it's probably we swing too far to that side, right? And so some churches pass a plate, some, some have an offering basket like we do, some have offering boxes on the back. Everybody's approached this differently. And here's what I can tell you for sure. There's no right way or wrong way to collect money or do that. There's just a biblical principle behind that. We're going to talk about that today, right? And so, if, again, if you're our guest here for the first time, you'd think maybe we talk about it all the time. We don't. Um, and I think probably maybe we might underdo it. This passage right here is probably the toughest passage on finances. This is the one that calls out like the strongest rebuke to God's people. But it also has the strongest promise on the back end. And so I really, I chose it for the, the strongest promise on the back end. We're doing these three one-off messages, time, treasure, talent, before we get into our grand opening and then we dive into the book of Isaiah, in which we'll spend most of this year in the book of Isaiah. But as we do this, Malachi is this Old Testament prophet, and he is speaking to God's people. It's about 400 years before Jesus enters into human history. So that's where Malachi sits in the timeline, if you will. And he's speaking to the Jewish people, God's people in the Old Testament. He's speaking to them, and he's speaking through Malachi to the people in an era where they are probably the furthest away from God or, or really close. They're in an era of, of great disobedience on behalf of the people. Bless you. And I am fighting that cold flu thing too, so if I pass out in the middle of the stage, we'll just pretend like it's a spirit-led revival and we'll like jump up and down, we maybe dance or something, I don't know, anyhow. But I want to read this passage, will you guys stand up with me please as we, as we stand for, for God's word? If you're able, if you're not able to stand, don't worry about it. And this is going to be uh, just ahead of where I told you, give me a Malachi 3, I just want to read you these five verses, starting in verse 8. Here's what God says. Now remember, strong rebuke, strong promise. Malachi 3, starting verse 8, says, Will a man rob God? God speaking, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine of your fields will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Generations, this is the word of God. You guys can be seated. I want to give you a main idea as we open this up. There's a starting point for us today. Our finances may be second only to our time reveals where our heart really is. A heart for God results in obedience in our finances. Here's what Jesus says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So write the word right out of this series title, treasure, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's why I said yesterday, there are two places. If you look at 2018 and you're planning for 2019, if you look at those two things and you look at 
2018, you look at your calendar and you look at your whatever you use, if it's a checkbook, a spreadsheet, a bank statement, whatever you do, to show where you spent money, here's what you would tell. Between your calendar and your spending, here's what you'll know. And it's what you truly value will be represented there. If you truly value activity and things like this, you will see your spending and your time given to that. If you truly value honoring God in that, you will, you will see that reflected. If you truly value family or saving or a home, or whatever it is you value, you'll see that. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad things. And I'm not saying any of those are contradictory. But you will see what you value. Or another way of saying this, whatever's missing ought to tell you something. If you don't see intentional time given to God, if you don't see a pattern of giving, then, then it should tell you something. And that's what God is speaking about in this passage. So we're going to back up to Malachi chapter 1. And here it is, it's verse 1. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to, the, to Israel by Malachi. Now remember, the people of God in the Old Testament were a nation. This was a nation given a promise. That promise was through this nation, I'm going to give you God's word, and then I'm going to bring to you the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus, Right? And so there's a collective group of people. It's like if God said, okay, Generations Church, here's what I'm going to do. Sometime in the future, I'm going to bring the Savior through you, right? And it started really with a family that grew into a nation, divided into two nations, and they were sent to care about other nations. But really, there's this, there's this group of people with kind of a, a name, just Israel, which Israel is just a name that means governed by God. That's what it means. And there's this people group that have been given the truth of God, been given God's word, God's prophets, God's law, and continually given to them. They would follow God and see blessing in their lives, and then they would wander away from God, and God would call them back to repentance, and when they would listen, they would find blessing in that. When they wouldn't listen, they'd be conquered by other nations, and they'd be run down, and then all of a sudden, they'd come back to God, and they would see that, that blessing rise up in their nation again. And, and they're in that season right now. It's about, again, 400 years before Jesus enters into human history, so about, think, 24, 2,500 years ago. <clears throat> and they have wandered away from God. And they're captive to other nations at this point in the story. And so God is speaking through a prophet. Now, a prophet isn't necessarily one who foretells the future, right? That's what a lot of times we hear prophecy, and we think it's about future telling. And I will say 90% of the time, prophecy is about saying God's truth, speaking God's truth or God's wisdom to God's people with God's authority. And so right now, he is speaking to them <clears throat> in the present tense. Not, hey, this will happen, but hey, this is happening right now. This is the truth about you right now. So Malachi the prophet is speaking in verse 2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? God says, is not, Jacob, or is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. I don't want to go too down the road of Esau and, and Jacob, but let me just summarize this. There's a man who's given God's promises. His name is Abraham. He has a son named Isaac who carries on the promises of God. He begins to pass them on, and he has two sons, right? So he has sons. Esau and Jacob, they're twins. <clears throat> and one of those sons is going to go on and become a follower of God. It's going to follow God's people. It's going to take the truth of God on and really become a nation. Like I said, it started with a family. It becomes a nation of people, right? And then after we see after Jesus ascends back to heaven, the message of God goes from a nation to the whole world, right? 
And what happens is there's these two brothers, and one ends up following God, and one doesn't. The older brother does not, and his name is Esau. The younger brother, Jacob, becomes the man Israel. Of course, his son become the tribes of Israel, and you guys, for the most part, know the story. And Esau, or Edom, his people, become uh, just a, a people that God, uh, that persecute God's people, and he is constantly, God is constantly pushing them back and fighting them back. And, and God says this, listen, I've loved you, and yet the people say, well, God, how have you loved us? He says, listen, compare yourself to the people of Esau, right? Who have never received my blessing, who are always outside of my plan, and yet you, even in your disobedience, is what God is saying, I have loved you. Even when you're unfaithful, I'm still your God. Like when you keep running away from me, often I will lift my hand off you and let you just kind of endure some of the penalty of your choices but then I bring you back, and when you, when you return to me, I return to you, and I bring you back. And he says, so I, I've loved you. And when you say, how have you loved me? I, 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 I see God says, listen, look how I've loved you even when you have been disobedient. Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So God goes on, he says, Listen, no matter what they do, they're outside my will. And they could build up and they can do all this, but they're never going to prosper until they come to me. He says, But you, you're my people. And I love that line in, in 2 Chronicles 7 when, when God is speaking to Solomon and they've built the temple finally and Solomon is fasting and praying and worshiping and, and, and giving offerings to God. And when he's asking God, God, will you rest your presence here among your people? And God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. And that promise echoes throughout time. And as Israel, the people of God, have wandered away from God right now, God is saying the same thing. Listen, if you'll humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear your prayers. I'll forgive your sin. I'll heal your land. He says, because I love you. See, do we treat God differently when he's blessing us or when we need something from God? then maybe when he's not, right? Maybe, do we, here's a practical example, when it's the beginning of the year, maybe finances are not where you would have them. Maybe you need a job, or maybe your income doesn't cover your expenses, or whatever it is, and you're praying, God, would you, would you meet my needs financially? And, and you're, do you seek God differently when you need something from him than when he ends up providing for you? Do you forget where it came from? That's kind of what he's saying to Israel. Like you're over here and you're pleading and I'm telling you you need to return over here but you're not listening and when I bless you, you tend to run away and then you get to the, to the kind of the bottom of the barrel. You get to your, your lowest point and then you cry out and all of a sudden it's my fault. And, and we laugh because that's us, right? We laugh because they're not alone, right? The great thing about the Bible is filled with real people with real stories that are really crazy, kind of really like us, Right? So verse 6, here God is going to press in. And again, this is probably one of the harder rebukes in all of Scripture. God says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. 
If I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. And here's what he's saying. Okay, you all understand human authority. If the king says, do this or you'll die, you do it, right? Or you die. Sons and daughters, if your father tells you to do this, right? What's the right outcome? You should do it. Fathers are given honor. Masters are given fear and respect and obedience. Kings are followed. And God is saying, they're human. I'm God. If you obey a father, why not me? If you obey a king, why not the king of kings? Why not your heavenly father? Why not the master and creator of everything? So back in verse 6, let's read that again. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now this is incredibly cultural 2,500 years ago. So let's do this. Here's how things in the Old Testament, if you will, church or temple, we use church, modern day language, we'll back up 2,500 years to the practices there. And here's how giving or tithing or offerings would work in the Old Testament church. People were primarily would raise sheep and cattle or they would grow crops of food and some would trade spices and you know, get paid in gold or whatever they would do, right? Silver, whatever they would do. And they would take whatever their income was. And if they would go out and harvest their crops, they would take the first tenth, they would take the first part of the harvest, the best part, and they would come and they would bring it to the temple, to the church, right? People that had animals, if they had 10 animals, they would take the, the first and best animal. They would come and they would give it to the church. And that would really, that would pay for the priesthood and, and for the people that worked there to serve them and lead them in worship. And so out of all the tribes, there was one tribe, Levites, that would serve full-time vocationally in ministry, kind of like a ministry staff today, similar, okay? And so it was fully funded, and the, the Levites, they didn't own land, they didn't have jobs, they were funded off the people. So the people would come, they would bring their food or their grain or their whatever, and they would give it to the, to the church. What was happening here was people, let's just use the idea of lambs, we can all picture lambs, right? So there's someone has sheep, they do sheep for a living. They would have 10, 10 babies, right? They would have 10 lambs, right? And then they would look at these 10, and they're like, okay, these are the best ones over here. Well, I'm going to keep these for myself. And there's that little runt over there that kind of walks with the lamp blind, got a little oozy stuff coming out of his eyes, right? That's how I feel today, so that's why I said that. So I just feel like that as I sniff in the mic. So, right? And they look at this little one over here, and they're like, well, let's give this one to God. Right? Here's what they're saying in their hearts. I want all these. This is the one I have no use for. Let's give that one. Now, if you have this little limpy one over here with the ooze and the whole thing, right? Do you want to eat that one? No. Does that lunch today? No. Only unless you go to Taco Bell, right? I mean, like, that, otherwise, like, that's, you don't want that, right? There's nothing there you want to eat, right? So here's what we're saying. If you're an owner, if you raise cattle or sheep, that's the one you don't want to eat. That's the one you don't want to breed. That's the one you can't sell. So let's give that one to God. 
Let's make that modern. You have an income. You get your income. And here's, here's your money. Here's your paycheck you get, whether it's a month or a week or whatever it is, your whole year, whatever it is you get. And you're like, okay, I've got to pay my house payment. I've got to pay for the cell phones. Ah, kids need braces, right? We've got to eat. Here's this. Okay, here's what's left. I'll give that to God. Same thing, right? Is it any different? That's what they're doing. Now, that's different than what God has called them to do, but that's what they're doing. And, 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 it's, and it's trickled all the way up to the top like this. Or it's, let me rephrase that. It started at the top and trickled down to all the people. It started with the leadership and then trickled down. Because then the leaders, they would not only eat some of the food and do that, but they would burn some. They would completely consume some as an offering to God. And they started by, they were consuming the stuff they didn't want. So we take everything we got, what do we need, what's left over, and then we'll talk about God and the what's left over part. That's the context for this. So back to our story, verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices that not evil... When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Like, take that offering to Caesar. This is before Caesar, but you get my point, right? Take that to the courthouse to pay your penalties, or take that to your mortgage bank to pay for your house, and see how that goes. Remember, he began this with, like, if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? If I'm a king, where's my obedience? Like if I'm a banker, where's the respect level that you want to actually keep your house, right? And so he says, if I was human, you would treat me better. And yet I'm God and you're giving me what is left over. And it's not even left over. It's, it's the very thing you've got no other use for. Like nobody wants this. You can't eat it, sell it, or breed it. Like nobody's got anything for this. This is the moldy food that you've got in the back of your refrigerator that you just need to throw out. That's not an offering. You know what I mean? Tithing. Here's the idea, and I've said this, but let me just, if you're, if you're asking a question, what is tithing? Tithing is only a, a term used in the church that I know of, right? Uh, tithing in both the Old Testament and New Testament is taught. There's two main principles. Tithe means tenth. Literally, the word means tenth. And then the idea is first tenth, called first fruits or giving your best, right? And so again, if the harvest came in, the first part of the harvest, right? Pentecost, by the way, that word Pentecost that we think of when the Holy Spirit descended on the church in Jerusalem, Pentecost is a feast, a Jewish feast that had been going on for hundreds of years, right? And it's the feast of first fruits. And it was, imagine you're harvesting, imagine you're growing food for a living. That's how you survive. And you grow this food and you go out and you take your first harvest and you bring it and give it to God. Do you understand the kind of faith it takes to say, okay, I believe more is going to grow. And this is probably, this is the first yield. This is the, I've been waiting for that corn. I've been waiting for that whatever. And you're going to go and it's going to be a big feast of the church. And it's all going to be consumed. And you're going to go home in faith, believing there's enough to come. That's that idea of first fruits. It takes, it takes, a, it takes faith, right? It's, it's a sacrifice. It's, it's giving of God your best. So it has these two ideas, a first tenth, uh, literally a tenth, and, and, and that giving of your best. So I want to start back at verse 6. I'm uh, sorry, verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? 
Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor, says the Lord of hosts. So here's what he's saying. That is the exact opposite of what tithing is. Now, bear in mind, they're still giving, right? And they're probably still giving a percentage-based giving. And so these are the people God is speaking to. They're giving. They're just not giving the way God has called them to give. They're not giving in a way that's sacrificial. They're not giving in a way that's faith-based. They're not giving in a way that really gives God their best They're not being obedient. They're taking everything and they're thinking of themselves first. And here's really what God is saying. Who causes the rain to fall on your crops? And when you get up to harvest, who put breath in your lungs and let you get out of bed? And who prevents the locust from coming and eating everything you grow? Who does that? Because I do that. So you see that whole harvest? It's all mine. Now I'm giving it to you to steward on my behalf. See, and there's a switch. When we, if we think of our income as, as gifts given to us by God, like talents that God has given you or me or somebody else, and an income and breath in our lungs and the health to get to work, which some of us understand that health is a gift, right? It's not guaranteed. It can be taken away or it can be lost and so God's saying, listen, every day you get up and earn, you do your thing, you, you have that, understand that I let you do that. I, I gave that to you. And I'm calling you to be good stewards with all of it. Right now, part of that stewardship is that financial peace thing we're talking about. Like not to be in debt and how to live with your new means, how to save for the future, all those different things, right? How to do that. And, I, and so I highly recommend that course and that you take that class, which I have done it when I was like 18. That would have been great. Not that I would have paid attention, but I should have done it, right? He's saying, listen, I want you to be good stewards of everything I've given you. So here's a note for you, a question to ask. So Christians believe in God, but often trust in money. Money shows where our heart is. Do our finances come before God? And what does that reveal? What does that mean? When we say, okay, I, I, I need to have a cable payment. I need to pay my cable bill because I'm binge watching something right now, right? Like Netflix comes first. Or I need to go to Starbucks every day. Or I need the, I, what happens when we put other things first? It's just, it's a heart check. What do we say truly about our worship of God? Right? Either it says we don't believe in what God tells us, or we don't trust God to provide for us, or we just outright say, you know what, I want this more than I want that. And so it's a challenge. We say we believe in God, but we tend to trust in money. Verse 9, and from now, or now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now remember, I chose this. This is like the harshest rebuke God has in all of Scripture. But it comes with one of the biggest promises. But here's what he says. Here's how you're giving to me. You're giving me what's left over and what you can't do anything else with. You're giving me stuff you wouldn't give to another human being because they wouldn't take it. That's what you're giving to me. He says, and now, entreat me for favor. Now you pray and ask me for things. He says, this is how you treat me. And then in your prayers, you're like, God, I need this. And he's just putting that up in front of people saying, listen, do you see this? Is this where your heart is? Verse 10, he says, oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, 
and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Did you hear this? Would you ever want God to say this to you? I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. I do a ton of stuff wrong. I know that's shocking to all of you, right? I, when I sit there in prayer and just confess before God and sit before God, it's, it's things like this, like, okay, God, I, or, or David in Psalm 51, where he says, create in me a clean heart, right? And take not your spirit from me. Like I sit there, okay, God, I would never want to be so outside your will that you take your spirit from me, or that I would be so outside your will that you would say, I have no pleasure in you, and I won't accept an offering from you. Just consider that for a minute. Verse 11, he says, From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered or worship will be given. In other words, to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, listen, there's, there's never going to be a time when the earth stops worshiping me. Okay? That's what he says. And just understand, Christianity is the, is the, is the largest faith on the planet. And he says, that's never going to cease. In fact, he would say, that's going to grow. But here's what he's saying. And you can, you can, if you're scrolling or turning pages, turn over to Malachi 3. But here's what he's saying. People are going to worship me. That's that incense, that fragrant offering that goes up to God. That's that symbolic of Old Testament worship. So here's what he's saying. There's never going to be a time where people stop worshiping me. And like, there's this implied question. Now, do you want to be a part of that? Or do you want that to happen without you? He says, it's going to happen. No matter if you figure this out or don't figure this out, no matter if generations exist or generations doesn't exist, it doesn't matter if Saddleback exists or doesn't exist. I mean, it, it matters. I'm just saying, with or without us, God will be worshipped. Right? God is going to expand the kingdom. That's what he does. It's going to grow. And he's just saying, do you want to be a part of that or not? Right? It's just simply, do you want to be a part of that advancement of the gospel? Do you want to be a part of that worship or not? And he just kind of tees that up and just sets that out there in front of us. Now, here's what's going to happen. From here, Malachi 1, the rest of Malachi 1 and all of Malachi 2, God's actually going to get worse, not better. Right? You thought this was rough. Read the rest. I'm going to shortcut that and just skip over to page, because at some point, you're just like, okay, I get the point, Right? Or maybe we need to hear it all, but still, we're going to kind of turn over to Malachi 3, where he begins to turn the corner. He's going to recap what he said, and then he's going to make those promises that we just read a minute ago, right? So Malachi 3, starting in verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So there's, there's something here. He says, I do not change. He says, my promises do not change, right? So if, if, if you're here today and you understand the gospel, even in its simplicity, right, that God created you and loves you, designed you to be a worshiper of God, right, that there's a way you are designed to live. Every one of us, that we're not some random chance of nature, right, that we're actually designed by God, that we're designed with a purpose, right? That purpose is to bring glory to God, that we would live this life, we would enjoy this life, and that this life, everything we do, would bring glory to God. And then the problem, right? So what's the problem with that? We all know that the world doesn't work that way, and it's sin. We have gone our own direction, right? That all of us, all of us, 
every human being ever has not lived that life, except Jesus, right? And because everyone had lived contrary to what God has called us to, God himself entered into human history. God in the flesh, Jesus. Jesus, the, the promise of God came. And we just obviously just coming out of Christmas, right? That Jesus entered into human history as an infant, as a child, right? A child born into poverty, a child under problem. I just uh, not came in as a, as a stellar king, just kind of riding in rock star style. I mean, came in poverty and humility, in a humble beginning, and lived that way for th roughly 33 years. And in that time, Jesus lived the life that we were called to live. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived as we are called to live. And then Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, right? The, Romans is the clearest one. It says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, right? That the penalty for us living contrary to our design is that we should die and be separated from God. That's what we all deserve, right? That we all deserve to die. Barring Jesus returning, we're all going to die, right? There's a physical death, but that spiritual separation from God too, that we all deserve hell. Let's just be honest, right? But Jesus, that God loves us so much that God would enter into our story and provide a way through. So Jesus enters in and he gives his life. God dies on behalf of humanity, right? Lives a sinless life, dies a vicarious death, is buried in a grave and raises from that grave to give us new life. That's the, in, in its fundamental basics, that's the gospel. And that our response to that is when we place our faith in Jesus, when we, when we allow Jesus to forgive us the, the, the grace that he has given us or the grace that he's offered us, when we, when we allow that to start taking over our life and start transforming our life, he forgives us and we, we can't earn it. Right? We can't be good enough. In fact, we'd all just admit none of us are good enough. But that very promise of God from thousands of years ago is what he's talking about. I, the Lord, have not changed. Like when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and the curse of sin came over all humanity and God proclaimed that Jesus would come, God says, I haven't changed. Jesus is coming. He would say that 2,400 years ago to, to Malachi. For us, he would say, Jesus came and Jesus is coming back, Right? He, said, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. And implicit in that is this too. And my commands don't change. Like the way I've called you to live doesn't change. Like I've said this from the beginning, like nothing's changed. Only thing that's changed is history has happened. But my promises are still good. My truths are still true. My response from you is still required. Not required for your salvation, as required to, to live inside of grace, right? To live as Jesus has forgiven us to live, as God has given us new life to live. He said, this is, this is what it looks like, right? And, and there's all kinds of, as we talked about time last week, giving time to God, not because it's a requirement, because we get to. I would say the same thing about giving. It's not because it's required, though it is. It's, that's not the reason I give. It's because I get to contribute to the ministry, I get to contribute to what we do. I get to be a part of that. I get to be obedient, not I have to be. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, or you, Generations Church, are not consumed. He says, because of my promises of grace over you, it's because of my promise of forgiveness through Christ that I just don't wipe you out completely that you are not consumed. That's what he says. So God does not change. God's promises to us do not change, which give us great hope 
And God's command to us, do not change either. Our giving funds uh, ministry just like it always has. Just Maybe we don't bring sheep and, and wheat or whatever, but it's, it's always been this, this piece of the puzzle that, that ministry has always been done out of what God has given us. Does that make sense? That's what God is saying. Is this, I haven't changed. I haven't changed my promises to you. I haven't withdrawn any promises to you. In fact, I've been fulfilling them and showing you and changing your life and loving you and serving you and transforming you, all that. And, and I'm just, I'm saying the same thing. The response doesn't change either. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So he's going to go back into this rebuke. Then he says this, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So here's that, if I was a father, where's my honor? If I was a master, where's my obedience? Where is this? Like, well, how have we not obeyed you? By bringing in your leftovers, by giving me what you don't want, by giving me what no one wants. Here's how you've done that. And so he goes through that and he, and he kind of he sums that up. And again, we skipped a lot of it. But then he says, return to me and I will return to you. Remember that verse earlier? If my people who are called by my name, like what we're Christians, were called by Christ's name, right? Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There's, it's called an if-then conditional clause. If my people this, he says, then... I will hear their prayers, forgive their sins, and heal their land. He's saying the same thing. He says, listen, if you'll just return, I'll return to you. Now remember, 2,400 years ago, these people were in captivity because of their disobedience, right? You can take from that, and you can extrapolate whatever you want to our Western American mindset and figure that out for this country if you want to. But for sure, for God's people that call themselves the church, this applies, Return to me, and I will return to you is God's promise. That's not even, that's just, that's a, a, a truth. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Here's how it works. He goes on, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. calls them to being stewards of what God has given them. Notice that they don't have nothing. Notice that they're giving. They're just giving what they can't use. Does that make sense? They're not completely without. God hasn't just, fa- just thrown famine on them. They're all starving and dying. It's just they're under the command of other people. He is still giving to them. And here's what he's calling them to. And just a simple modern day term is stewardship. And I'll put this up on the board for you. I don't know why I call it a board. It's a TV. But we'll put it up on the TV. <laughs> I don't know, what am I, 100 years old? Stewardship is taking care of something that belongs to someone else. God starts from the premise that he has given us everything we have, therefore all our resources are his, our time, our treasure, our talent, they're God's. That's the premise. And we are to be good stewards over them. A steward is one who takes care of something for someone else. Just imagine this, if, if I gave you millions of dollars and I said, I want you to be good stewards of that, and I want you to take care of my wife. What happens if my wife goes without, but you're good? Pissed, right? That's what he's saying. I want you to take care of my bride, the church. Verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And listen, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
That verse is so powerful that it takes everything that God has said, even if we had finished chapter 1 and read chapter 2, and just listened to the vast weight of what God was saying his people have done and do. Even under that, this verse right here makes everything okay. It goes from return to me and I will return to you. So your natural inclination is, okay, how, how do I return? Right? How do I return? How do we return to God? And here's what God says. And I just want to read this to you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And this is what God says. That there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until, listen to this, until there is no more need. As we're starting off this year, here's, here's a lot of us do this. If you don't do this, it's, there's no magical start point that January 1st is just this magic time where everybody does budgets. It's just it's the beginning of a year, right? Some people have a fiscal year. They do it in June or whatever they do. But we just most of us should look at the year. 18 is gone. We're looking at 2019. And we're saying, how can we do better? What are the things that I wish were different from 18 that I want to be in 19? For me, that's planning, that's some goals, that's, that's things for the church, things for my home, things with my wife and I, things in my spiritual life, things in our finances, things, whatever it is. And here's what he's saying. If a piece of the puzzle for you is finances, if giving, if this message at all has resonated with you, he says this, test me. In fact, we are commanded not to test God in the Bible. This is the one exception One, you get one exception in all of the Bible where it says, do not test the Lord your God like a hundred times. And then it says, God says, test me in this. There's only one place in the Bible where God says, put me to the test. God challenges the people to trust them in their finances. Should that not speak to us if there's only one place God says to test me, right? And I'm going to guess, and I don't I don't, here's the thing, by the way, we have a treasurer, we have elders, we look at budget numbers and things like that. I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't want to know. I don't want to, I don't want to have a conversation with somebody and be thinking they do or don't, I don't care, right? I do care, I care for you, and I care for the church, but we have someone who oversees that, who makes it confidential, does all that, I don't want to know. That way I can just unashamedly stand here and look at you and look at you and look at you and just say the same thing, because I have no idea. And the truth doesn't change, and it doesn't matter. But I'm just going to guess that this is an area that if you don't struggle in it now, you've struggled in it at some point. And that many are struggling to do this now. Knowing what God says and struggling to do it. And there's there's a place of that. And so this, this is a great promise. Test me. Try me. Give me the next 90 days and see. And listen to the rest of it. Let's go to the next slide. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God calls us to test him by tithing, which challenges us to live on less than we bring in, which probably already doesn't seem like enough, right? Anybody's like, I make too much money. Because if so, I'd like to have a different conversation with you. We probably already feel like we've got more month than we have money, right? That's a, kind of a Dave Ramsey saying, right? There's more month than money. Like, they are, we already feel like there's not enough. And God yet is calling us to, and I won't get into this, but really live on 80% of it. Giving and saving is the other, right? God's calling us to live under, below our means, like within our means, right? And he's saying, test me, try me, see if I don't do this. So here's the next slide. 
the promise. God says, bring the full tithe and I thereby put me to the test if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says to test him and see if he doesn't divinely provide for you until there is no more need. Now, I want to push pause just for a second. This is not God wants to make you rich, right? That's Creflo Dollar in another church, right? That's different, okay? And I'm just saying that's not what God is saying, okay? I've got a snort. That was pretty good. We captured that on the video because I think people at home need to hear that snort, but... He says, put me to the test and see if I don't open up and bless you until there's no more need. Now, maybe that's bless you with a different job so you can work hard and actually make enough. Maybe that's give you another income or take away your needs or maybe whatever it is. Just whatever it is, he says, test me and see if I don't provide for you. See, this isn't about me and this isn't about generations. This has been going on for thousands of years and this is the way that the church has always existed. And we've, we've known that, that incomes are shrinking and needs are growing and the cost of property and electricity and everything else is growing. And so we got an income generating property knowing like that allows us to do more ministry, right? But that doesn't take the calling to me, the calling to you, that doesn't take that away and it doesn't take away the promises that God has given you. That if you're obedient here, because this is a test of the heart, This is a place that it hurts, it's hard. But God says, test me and see if I don't rise to the challenge for you. See if I don't show up and bless you. See if I don't bless you until there's no more need. That's powerful, right? I think there's one more, yeah? A change of heart. The first and most important thing is to approach finances differently. Less like an idol that we trust in more than God himself and begin to view everything you have as God's, but entrusted to you. Is there one more slide? There is, a starting point. Where do we begin? Taking a first step, depending on where you are, maybe first time giving, regular giving, or moving towards a percentage-based giving. I would say this, what's the starting point? For you, I don't know. If you don't give, and just, let me, let me back up one step. We said 2018, we were really excited that we got to 94% of our anticipated giving after sending out two church plants and then moving. I've said that in the beginning as we walked through the budget. And here's what I can tell you. The people that we sent out in those two different church plants, they they had been a part of the church for a long time. They gave, they served, they did that. And we sent them out, right? We've been here and now we're adding people, we're growing, we're adding people in, right? People live in the neighborhood are starting to come, things like that. And when you send out people that give and they go and they give to the church plant and they become a part of that, and you take in new people, it takes time for people to know the church and trust the church. That's because the church hasn't always done good in this area, right? And if there wasn't bad stories about it, right, then, then maybe it'd be different. But there is that. We live in that reality. So the first time someone shows up, they're not, they don't just say, oh, like, this is my home church. I can't wait. And they just write a check. I mean, that doesn't happen. And so we're all in a different place. Some of us are brand new, like almost 10% were baptized last year. Some are young in their faith. Some here are not yet, would say they're not yet Christians. Some are later in their faith. Some are new to the church. Some have been around for a while. So everybody's in a different place. Here's what I would say is find your starting point. But don't make your starting point something comfortable. Don't start with your budget. Start with God. And when God says, listen, test me. I don't mean test me. I'll let you down. Honest. God says, test him. 
and see if he won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessing until you have no more need. That's God's promise, not something I can fulfill. But that's where the challenge is. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I'm going to be honest with you, I have no problem talking about any topic. The only time I ever think about this, Lord, is I walk in and I think of the things that have been done in other churches and just misfires in the church around money. Not ours, Lord. I'm not the word perfect, but I'm just saying I feel like there's baggage from the church, Lord, so forgive me uh, if I have not spoke boldly enough. Forgive all of us, Lord, if we've not trusted you rightly. We've tried to make it easy. Lord, we don't pass a plate. We, we try and make it as easy as possible that people can have, that every one of us can have a conviction inside our heart about what this means for us and how we do it. And so, God, let me get out of the way. And I pray, God, would you speak to us? Speak to us in this hard-hitting place of money, in that idol where even you, Jesus, said, you cannot serve God and money. Lord, help us. Let us trust you and test you, Lord, that you will be generous. It's in your name we pray. Amen.